So I'm Anna Joyce Springer in the literature department, and um, this is the new writing series. And uh, before I introduce our reader for today, Seth Lair, um, I want to tell you about a few other events that are happening in this fall season. Maybe down on the treble just a little, the high end. Thanks, Frankie. Um, on the 3rd of November, we have Stuart Dybeck, who's the author of several books of fiction and poetry, a really well-known and really wonderful writer um, who, among his many, many prizes and awards, has received a MacArthur Genius Award. Um, and uh, on the 9th of November at the library in the Seuss Room, um, in conjunction with the Archive for New Poetry, um, we are co-sponsoring a celebration of James Schuyler's new book, Other Flowers, with readings by James Metz and Simon Pettet. What time is that? That's at 4.30. Oh, it is. Yeah. No, same as all the others, 4.30 to 6. Um, and I think there will be cake, <laughs> among other things literary edibles. Um, and our last reading of the fall quarter is um, by the poet Monica Yoon, who is uh, the author um, most famously of Ignatz, and her poems have been published all over the place. And she's interesting, um, I think, especially for students, not, not only because of her really great writing, um, but because she makes her living not as a writer or in the academy, but as a lawyer. Um, which shows that um, you know there are multiple ways to be a writer in the world. Oh, and she's a finalist for the National Book Award. No small thing. Um, okay, to introduce um, our guest Seth Lair today, I'm going to start with a joke, as is appropriate for our guest today. For several hundreds of years, an order of monk scribes in medieval Europe had been scrupulously copying important religious texts by hand. One day, a very old and devout monk who was elegantly penning the rules for monks felt a pang in his heart and spoke up to the abbot. We have been copying these words from copies of the original for as long as I have been here. And I fear that if a hundred years ago even one bleary-eyed monk made even the smallest mistake, we might perpetuate that mistake until in times. Please, Father, shouldn't we take a look at the original scrolls to be supremely certain of our accuracy? The abbot agreed and gave him the special key from around his neck that would unlock the deep storage under the monastery where the original documents were stowed. Hours went by, but the old devout monk did not return with the scrolls. Eventually, the abbot himself went down to inquire and found the old monk slumped in the corner with his face in his hands. The monk looked up with a tear-streaked face and said, The word is celebrate. <laughs> I remembered this joke while looking at Seth Lehrer's book, Error in the Academic Self, The Scholarly Imagination, Medieval to Modern, when I read the line, his line, we live in the academy by blunder. 
And in his book, Inventing English, Lehrer describes the way a language thrives through imaginative twists, stumblings, and tromperies of tongue and pen. Lehrer's scholarly interests include medieval studies, comparative philology, and the history of scholarship and children's literature, arguably Lehrer's most celebrated area of expertise. His book, Children's Literature, Reader's History, From Aesop to Harry Potter, has recently won both a 2009 National Book Critics Circle Award, and he was awarded the 2010 Truman Capote Award for Literary Criticism. In his acceptance speech at the National Book Critics Circle Award, he stated with impeccable timing, my understanding is that it's conventional in events such as these to thank the little people. In my case... The little people include the imps, the elves, the gnomes who populate the pages of my book. Reviewers repeatedly repeatedly describe his writing with terms like playful, lively, inventive, and they delight in Lair's intimate engagement with literature. You could consider his body of work a kind of intellectual autobiography of encounters with the English language, an ongoing episodic tale of wonder. And his story writing is not so different from the scholarly writing. In a nonfiction short story called First Love, Lair characterizes his young self as a sneezy, sickly teen given to reading science fiction who enjoys listening to his girlfriend's father read Henry Adams aloud while he and his girlfriend fondle secretly under an afghan. Throughout his body of work, literature is a prompt for engagement, anxiety, bumbling, and pleasure. In 2008, UCSD had the great insight to lure Seth Lair away from Stanford to make him our Dean of Arts and Humanities and Distinguished Professor of Literature. He's been a fierce advocate for the humanities and extraordinarily supportive of the writing section, including this new writing series, which is not why we asked him to read today. We asked him to read because after seeing him perform a lecture about his newest book, an annotated version of The Wind in the Willows, Sarah Ray and I were utterly delighted by his writing and stage presence. When we learned that he writes nonfiction and poetry, we knew he'd be a perfect example of a writer and public intellectual who doesn't sacrifice fun on the altar of scholarship. A couple of other things you should know about Seth before he reads. When he was 15, he actually played on Beethoven's piano in Vienna. When he was 21, he spent a summer in Iceland on a sheep farm. And at 55, he still gets phone calls from his mother asking if he's regular. (laughs) As you will see, Seth Lair is not only a brilliant scholar and writer, but like the fabled, fabled mushroom who walked into a bar, he's also a real fun guy. Please help me welcome Seth Lair. It's a lovely introduction. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be part of this series and such a treat to be able to share some of my work in creative nonfiction with you. What I'd like to do today is first say a few things about my work in this area and then read a couple of selections from some creative nonfiction. Uh, the first selections will be uh, drawn from a longer text, and then the uh, second selection will be a continuous text. Uh, as Anna Joy pointed out, much of my work has not only an autobiographical cast, but in many ways argues that autobiography is not just a life of experience, but a life of books. 
and I've been very interested in the way in which writers construct themselves as readers. I'm very interested in the ways in which memory turns into fiction, and I'm very interested in the ways in which personal narrative blurs the lines between the fictional and the factual. The novelist Wright Morris has a wonderful aphorism in which he says, anything processed by memory is fiction. And so I think that the phrase creative nonfiction is not only an apt description of the particular genre that I'm going to share with you today, but in many ways an apt description of much of the writing of our time, a sort of beautiful oxymoron that brings together the memorial and the made-up. Robert Graves wrote one of the greatest works of creative nonfiction, which many of us recognize now as more creative than nonfictional, in his 1929 autobiography, Goodbye to All That. And in a postscript to that book, he wrote about the kinds of things that should go into what he calls a popular memoir. And I'm going to quote a little from him. He says, People like reading about poets. A little foreign travel is usually needed. Other subjects of interest are school episodes, love affairs, wounds, weddings, religious doubts, methods of bringing up children, and severe illness. And he concludes, people also like reading about other people's mothers. <laughs> and so I'm going to begin with selections from an ongoing nonfiction narrative, which I call My Mother, the Ingenue. Do you all know what an ingenue is? Who doesn't know what an ingenue is? An ingenue is a word that was used to describe a young, usually very pretty woman in movies or on the stage who would play uh, delightful young roles. And uh, another word for an ingenue is usually a soubrette, another word we don't hear very often today. After my father left my mother for another man, Mom returned to New York to find what remained of her Jewish roots. She moved first to Manhattan, and finding it too expensive and too changed, soon settled in Jackson Heights. I think she must have had an aunt or a cousin or someone from her past who sold her on the fantasy of this community. Whatever brought her there, she soon found that it too had changed. Old Jewish women jostled on the street with recent emigres from Argentina. Colombian drug dukes, the drug lords, were elsewhere, shared office space with bogus travel agents and South Indian accountants. Korean dry cleaners paid rent to Greek landlords. One day, on a street full of saris, it occurred to Mom to join the Yiddish theater. What was left of the old legacy of Second Avenue was now ensconced in some Episcopalian church basement deep in Midtown. The people's stage, known as the Folksbina, had been revived, and Mom auditioned for a role in a play called Shop, a bit of 1920s agitprop that was selected as the troupe's seasonal opener. Mom always claimed to have the Yiddish language. She recalled tales told by her grandfather of a house that floated away in the rain or of an evil baker's wife who was transformed into a toad. To my ears, they all sounded like Isaac Becerra's singer on mescaline. 
But my brother and I took her at her word that such tales at the very least were told. And we grew up with words that I later learned meant nothing save the memorial resonance for a small girl in 1930s Brooklyn floating away in the rain. So when my mother got the part, and when the show was set, we all agreed to see her. I drove in from Princeton with my wife, who found all this as much an anthropological venture as a family obligation, as if Margaret Mead had actually married one of those Samoans and was every now and then compelled to show up at some ritual of mutual humiliation. (laughs) When we arrived, we found ourselves the only people in the audience under 70, and we took our seats under our own power, waiting for the play to begin. There was Mom, the shop worker, speaking a stage Yiddish far removed from 1930s emigre Brooklyn. The stage was filled with sewing machines nearly as old as the actors themselves, though I suspect that they had far more plastic, metal, and battery power in them than the manual machines did. During the intermission, as I wandered around what had been conjured into a theater lobby, someone came up to me and asked in Yiddish what I was doing there, and I noted that my mother was in the play. Which one was she, he asked. And I said something to the effect of, oh, the one on the right in the big chorus scene. Oh, he replied in English, the ingenue. Of course she was. She'd always been the ingenue throughout my childhood and before. Her life was lived in the theatrics of the amateur, from blithe spirit through the rivals to the odd couple. There was mom, straight girl, to my dad. They'd met, as I was told countless times, in the Brooklyn College production of Blithe Spirit, Dad must have been in his early 20s, out of college already with an M.A. and a teaching job. What he was doing back in Brooklyn College, starring in stage plays with undergraduates, was a mystery to me. But he was there, Charles Condamine, to Mom's Elvira, the dead first wife. I have a picture of the cast, each member signing off under his or her costumed head. An assembly of Jewish immigrant children convinced that the surest way to successful assimilation was to ape the artifice of British swells. Decades later, hardly a week went by when sometime between the salad and the ice cream, Dad would yell out, Damn you, Elvira! And Mom would get that look on her face as if to say, Tell that silly old bitch to mind her old business. But it was their play, and always, which was the, play of that, which was the song of that play, was their song. Without the slightest provocation, Dad would burst into its opening refrain, and he and Mom would do a turn around the kitchen and recall how Morty Gunty or Irwin Mazursky or other people that they went to Brooklyn College with had garbled their lines, couldn't act, and now see how famous they'd become. And the strains of always filtered down the hall, and the Brooklyn Barrymores came back to life. You could say, I've always had a theatrical life, and even I was put on the stage almost as soon as I could talk. Every summer, Mom and Dad would work the camps in upstate New York, Dad directing the plays, Mom doing the sets. When I was five, they actually put me in a camp, the kids' bunk at Camp Kiwa, while they did the shows. Privileged arena for the Brooklyn aristocracy, that summer, the heir to the Waldbaum's grocery chain was a bedwetting bunkmate, and the camp had boasted such alumni as Lauren Bacall, Camp Kiwa offered up that blend of Jewish cultural instruction and athletic sadism so characteristic of the 1950s summer experience. It's okay to laugh at some of this. The summer I was four, I wasn't even in the camp, and Dad put me on the stage. 
All I remember that I was, was that I was supposed to be a horse and that I was running around the stage in a circle while the counselor playing the piano yelled out, Seth Lehrer was the only name I heard. Had she called everyone's name or just mine? And the summer I was five, I was a dog, the MC of a talent show where everyone was dressed as animals. And I remember, too, another show when I was dressed up as a doctor, Ben Crazy, M.D., written on my smock. And even earlier, I must have just been three. There's a memory of Dad insisting that I put on a large diaper and get on a platter, trussed up like a roast pig with a tomato in my mouth, while the drama staff danced out intoning his name, Larry Lehrer, Larry Lehrer, Larry Lehrer, to the tune of the Hallelujah Chorus. Hardly a week went by in Brooklyn years later when I didn't hear some voice calling out, Mr. Lehrer, Mr. Lehrer, remember? Kiss me, Kate, 1954. And some poor pimpled adolescent would be going through the motions of a show my dad had put on years before. One summer when I was a college student, we went to Martha's Vineyard for the summer. And my brother and I followed my parents to a beach that turned out to be a nude beach. Of course, dad had to drag us there. My brother and I, too embarrassed to say anything, kept our eyes down. But my mother had that it's child support look on her face, sitting there while Dad strutted around naked, deep in the narcotic of his narcissism. And then from out of the surf, we heard, Mr. Lehrer, Mr. Lehrer, remember? Kiss me, Kate, 1954. Another opening, another show. And now some middle-aged fat boy in a red beard dancing along the sand, his genitals flying this way and that, a pendulum to mark their time. (laughs) Another town, another show. When we lived outside of Boston, Mom and Dad starred in The Rivals. Dad was, of course, Captain Absolute, the dashing shine of a minor aristocracy feigning to be young Ensign Beverly to woo Lydia Languish, Mom. Captain Absolute. The name became a clarion at home. Now, in the mid-1960s, TV was full of superheroes. There was Mr. Terrific, a mild-mannered clerk who takes a special potion. And there was Captain Nice, a mama's boy whose potent pill made him the superman of the suburbs. Such shows should really be appreciated as the origin of camp. Playful tales of effeminates who found themselves transformed for public maleness. Did my dad take a pill each morning? What were the potions of his public self? And in those rivals' days, he would return from work and entering the kitchen would announce its captain absolute. And mom, languishing her days alone, would hide her secret novels and the LPs and make a dinner that he never finished before he would charge out on some other errand. Another town, another show. As we moved around, my parents would join amateur theater groups, and they would look for towns much as people would look for the church or the good school. Once, when we lived in suburban Pittsburgh, they played in the odd couple. Dad, of course, was Felix, the neat freak, and Mom was Gwendolyn, or Cecily. I always get them confused. Neil Simon's Pigeon Sisters, as I discovered later, had the same names as the ingenues in Oscar Wilde's Importance of Being Earnest, a play my parents never did, but one they raved over in a performance at Stratford, Ontario, where the great William Hutt played Lady Bracknell in drag in repertory one year with King Lear. I've always wondered if Dad would age into King Lear or Lady Bracknell but there was no question about mom. She was Renee, Renee, named after Renee Adoré, a silent film star of the 1920s.
She was an artist as well as an actress, and she learned to paint at the Brooklyn Museum Art School under a man named William Keenbush, an abstract expressionist and sign of a wealthy Princeton family. He was always Mr. Keenbush in my mother's stories, elegant, well-traveled, impeccably turned out. Recently, I googled him, and I found a photograph from 1956, T-shirt, paintbrush, dark eyes, a lower lip to die for. He seems to have spent a good deal of his time, when not teaching, traveling through Europe. The volumes of his journals are now in the Smithsonian Institution. They're in the form of letters to his mother, this from a man in his 40s. He gives the impressions, as I read in one of these journals, quote, in long passages and describes eating lunch with the Greek king and queen and other guests at the exclusive Propeller Club. Mom's only travels in those days were to the Brooklyn or the Metropolitan Museums, and the only royalty she dined with was the carpet king of Flatbush, who commissioned her to paint a circus mural in his house and put his own face in as the ringmaster. In a portrait that she painted in the early 1950s, she painted a picture of my father as a clown making up before an act. He's looking in the mirror, applying eyeliner, his face already whitened. The face is stretched out as if to take the makeup more evenly. The eyebrows raised, the mouth wide open. Is it a look of fear, of fascination? How different from the serene Mr. Keenbush, staring out of my computer screen, meeting my gaze. What did my mother see in him? What did she see when she looked in the mirror of her wedding picture? What did my father see? when he made up before the show. As a child, I saw mirrors everywhere, windows at night that threw my face back at me, the backs of spoons that made each dinner a funhouse, my reflection in my mother's eyes. The TV sat in the den like a black mirror until my father would come home and we would spend the early evening watching game shows. He would shout in Yiddish, Suzuken dem emis, to tell the truth, with a flourish of the hand as if it were a magic spell. To tell the truth was one of his favorites, but they were all there. I've got a secret. What's my line? The game shows of the 1950s and 60s were all about finding out, about exposing impostures of the everyday. Find the real violinist. Find the man who married a princess or the woman who could recite the Bible by heart. The television of the 1950s, though, did not just broadcast game shows. It broadcast secrets. The Army McCarthy hearings filled the screen the year before I was born, and I grew up overhearing all my parents' arguments about the guilt or innocence of others. Are you or have you ever been? My mother's favorite professor at Brooklyn College, Harry Slockauer, spent her whole undergraduate life under investigation for his communist sympathies and was eventually dismissed in 1952. And so we would sit there in the den watching domesticated versions of the trials my parents feared, the game shows deflected social terror. They channeled all the anger and the fascination of a nation reared on loyalty oaths and security investigations. The urge to expose was still there, only now, under the benign and bow-tied aegis of Bud Collier or Gary Moore, the stakes were simple. I've got a secret. And the biggest secret was the sex behind it all. Just think of all those black and white interrogators. Instead of Kefauver or Morrow, there was Robert Q. Lewis, Bennett Cerf, Peggy Cass, Dorothy Gilgallan, as sexually ambiguous a panel as you could find. Woody Allen had figured all this out in one of his movie skits, where he has a rabbi come on a game show and reveal that his secret is to be tied up and beaten by a shiksa while his wife sits at his feet and eats pork. <laughs> I've got a secret. 
What's my line? To tell the truth. And then there was beat the clock. We lived in the theater of interrogation, and my parents shaped their sympathies to fit their fears. There's an old joke in my mother's, that my mother's cousin used to tell about the 1970s when vans of young Orthodox men would troll the streets looking for lapsed Jews to enfold. Are you Jewish, they would ask strangers on the street, and those who weren't would say no, and those who were would say, who wants to know? Well, we all wanted to know, and for my family, Judaism was as much a play as anything else. There were the costumes of the faithful, the rites and rituals, the shows of Sabbath and Seder. For Reformed Jews of my mother's generation, the great fear, however, was not the Gentile, but the deeply Orthodox. Mom's bitterness reserved itself for believers of her own kind, and the New York of my childhood filled itself with bearded men and covered women I was taught to loathe. One day, my grandmother went into the hospital. I don't remember why or where, but I do remember that it was around the corner from the old Lubavitcher Seminary in Brooklyn. Mom and Dad left me with my younger brother in the car. Now, I could not imagine leaving a pet unattended in a car, let alone two boys, eight and four. And even if I did, what would I say? Don't touch the dashboard, leave the wheel alone, keep the doors locked? No. For my mother, it was, don't look the Lubavitch in the eye. We had these superstitions. Well, that they wouldn't let you take their picture, that they wouldn't count off in the army, that if they met your gaze, you'd turn into a goat. I think what my parents really feared was that if they looked you in the eye, they'd turn you back into a Jew. Assimilation, passing, whatever you want to call it, would be wiped away before what mom feared was their terrifying gaze. They were the real spirits of my nightmares. And in fact, my earliest single memory is of a dream I had when I was three years old in which my bed is surrounded by dancing flames, each one with a leering bearded face and a black hat. Maybe what terrified mom most was that her children would be stolen. Abducted into orthodoxy, we would have been denied the salvation of her social soul, my son, the doctor, my son, the lawyer, my son who could pass. These, of course, were my father's fears as well. We'd have to do the passing for him, as later in life we would show up at public events just to prove that he had children. And when he died, and I said Kaddish at his funeral, Mom kissed me and took me aside and said, finally relieved. I guess I was just tired of playing the beard. Some lived their beards and others played them. For us, it was a costumed life. And from the wardrobe of my Judaism, I'll put on one more, and I'll conclude this bit with the following. My brother was bar mitzvahed in suburban Pittsburgh in June of 1972. By then, my parents were living so far beyond their means that one great fling would hardly dent their debts. Dad had a way of hearing about the best of everything, friends, lovers, co-workers. Somebody always told him about the best restaurant or the best movie or the best lawn service, and invariably all of them turned out to be fly-by-night or someone's brother or a front for illegal operations. As my brother's bar mitzvah rolled around, Dad came home with news of the best caterer in Pittsburgh. Sight unseen, food untasted, he retained them. We would have the ceremony at the temple in the morning, then come home and they would be set up, the party in the garden, everything in order. And so when we turned the corner at 1.30 and we saw the big Wilson's catering truck in front of the house and emerging from it was a family of African Americans in livery, 
toting great platters of ribs, ribeyes, roasts, and greens. A white-toked server carved. And women in the kinds of maids' uniforms you see now only in pornography took drink, drink orders. It was high theater, all right, and for years, all Pittsburgh talked about the Lehrer's soul food bar mitzvah with the same blend of awe and horror as the court of Louis XIV must have talked about the king inviting Moliere to sit in his presence. All of which brings me back to Mom the Ingenue singing about a sweatshop on a borrowed stage. Shop was a play about the workers' plight, but it was, of course, a play about the theater, about the magic of material, about how immigrants would cut the patterns of their lives out of the bolts, about how dress and drama always go together. Little wonder that its playwright, the pseudonymous H. Levick, was also the author of The Golem, perhaps the most famous play in all of the Yiddish repertory, the story of a monster conjured out of clay, a haunted creature, a miscreant. We all have ghosts and golems in our lives, in our lives. Could you imagine blithe spirit in Yiddish? A freilicher Geist. And all that we can do is dress up or disguise or paint away the winter. Years after Mom had given up the people's stage, she took to her apartment's walls in Queens and painted birds and branches. The wooden wardrobe took on her colors as a twig arched over the armoire and met its mate against the wall. My wife thought it looked very natural and told her so, but I knew that this was a stage set. Mom had painted herself in, transformed her flat apartment into a one-bedroom theater. For God's sake, says Elvira in the final act of Blythe Spirit, not another seance. But the door is open and the table is set, ready for Mr. Kingbush or Charles Condamine to sit. I'm now going to read another selection, which should take about 20 minutes or so, and then I understand we can have some questions. This is a piece that uh, is in progress and is just about to appear, and I want to share it with you first. It's called First Love. The autumn I turned 14, I came down with whooping cough. Like everybody of my generation, I was vaccinated as a child, and by the late 1960s, incidences of the illness had been reduced to one in 100,000. But as ninth grade began, I found myself uncontrollably wheezing after what seemed like a mild cold. Half a dozen deep coughs would come, followed by a grip across my chest that stopped my breathing. I'd stand up, gasping for breath, the air coming through my tightened throat with a high-pitched whoop, and then I breathed again. It's not as if I'd been a sickly child. No chronic illnesses, no months in bed, no frail, fantasy-ridden birthdays. All I remember is that from the age of about 6 to 12, I always had a cold. Days would go by when I would sniffle, blow, and watch packs of handkerchiefs fill with a sticky green snot. If you sniffle one more time, I'll cut your nose off, I remember my father blurting out. When I was 7, I was taken to a doctor who drained my sinuses with a pneumatic syringe. And I sat in his office chair, watching a glass jar fill with bubbling mucus. I read and sniffled my way into adolescence. Propped up in bed, I'd reach for a tissue as often as I turned a page. Finally, at 12, I had my adenoids removed, an awful hospital procedure that left me bleeding from the throat for days and had me eating jello for a week. One day, when we were in a store after the operation, I coughed up some blood. A blob of dark, congealing goo stared up from the store's carpet. 
And as we hustled out of the door, my mother said, well, that's the last time I can go to Lowman's. Mom took her out on me, but she may have been angrier with my father. Just a year before, he had uprooted us to follow his ambition. Some men dream of being firemen or doctors or air aces. My dad dreamed of being a high school principal. A dozen years of classroom history teaching and low-level junior high administration weren't paying off. And so at 39, he applied and was miraculously accepted into Harvard's Graduate School of Education. Now he could be Dr. Lehrer and lead one of the great high schools that made Brooklyn famous. It was 1964. We moved into a little house near Cambridge where I grew strawberries in the backyard and read science fiction in my room. The first day of Harvard, Dad was sent home because he, because he wore a sports shirt to class. Mr. Lehrer, all my students wear jackets and ties, he reported his professor as saying. The Harvard club was serving horse meat and mushroom sauce on Fridays. Radcliffe girls wore tartan skirts with their hair in buns. And I was reading Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, Yevgeny Zemiatin's We, and George Orwell's 1984, imagining myself a hero in the future with clean sinuses, while Dad went out and bought a dozen white shirts and skinny black ties. He smoked. I sniffled. And I watched him read and study all the books that would define the social science of the 1960s. Daniel Moynihan and Gunnar Myrdal on race. Stoughton Lind on class. I scanned his bookshelf. H.R. Hayes, From Ape to Angel. Edgar Friedenberg, The Dignity of Youth and Other Atavisms. I had no idea what an atavism was, but I knew that as a youth I had little dignity. And though I never dared to open up from ape to angel, I imagined it a book of evolutionary science fiction on a par with Huxley, creatures captured by ambitious scientists, placed in some marvelous machine, and transformed into ethereal beauties. Three years later, despite his Harvard doctorate, Dad still had not been transformed from ape to angel. There we were at graduation, with the mayor coming in on horseback and everyone in caps and gowns looking like characters out of a medieval missile. Commencement, 1967. Leonard Bernstein and William F. Buckley received honorary doctorates. Ancient alumni strode by with straw boaters, each festooned with crimson ribbons in their class year. One such alumnus, nearly blind, came up to Dad after the ceremony and said, Excuse me, young man, but can you tell me how to get to Adam's house? where I used to take my meals. It's in 1887 on his ribbon. That day, I decided I would spend my life in college. I read everything I could that summer, opened up and closed the local public library, started the new school year charged with a desire to excel. But no white shirts and skinny black ties could change my dad. And 18 months after receiving his degree, he came home to announce that we were moving. No school would have him as a principal, no system as a superintendent. Desperate, he had taken a job as a management consultant in Pittsburgh at a firm that, he told us years later, then existed only in the briefcase of the man who interviewed him. He had bought a seven-bedroom stone house in the suburbs, and we were all going to drive there after Christmas. Overnight, we disappeared, everything packed, the house sold, friends gone. It was as if we had been resettled in the witness protection program, our Cambridge lives stripped and sheathed in steel gray. All I managed to keep were my books and a pair of paisley hip-hugger bell-bottoms, 
that I bought at a store called Truk in Brattle Street, a shop that opened shortly after Yellow Submarine debuted at the movies. And so, in the fall of ninth grade, when my nose and throat flared up in Pittsburgh and the big stone house rattled with my whooping, I missed 40 days of school. Friends would bring homework over to the house, and I would dutifully keep up with the classes anxious to return. There was a group of three or four girls whom I liked, and before I got sick, we would spend our afternoons in the school library, flirting and talking about books, friends, and teachers. During my time at home, one or more of them would show up with the assignments and the papers, coyly chatting with my mother at the door, never daring to come into the house and see how I was doing. One day, I got a stack of reading from one of those girls. Her name was Anne, and she had brilliant red hair, which she kept in place with an Indian headband. Together with her granny glasses and her boots, she looked like a sweeter version of the girl with Richard Browdigan on the cover of the novel Trout Fishing in America, which we were all reading at the time. Anne left the stack of books along with copies of the student newspaper, and I went downstairs after she, had to pick, after she left to pick them up. As I read through the newspapers, I noticed that along the margins, in between the lines, and in the large indents for paragraphs, Anne had written, in a tiny, mechanical-penciled hand, I love you. I love you was everywhere. It filled the pages up and down until hardly a white part of the newspaper was visible. I sat there in bed, poring over her scribbles again and again. Just seeing those words had a magical, incantatory effect. Now, it's hard to remember a time before cell phones and email and text messaging. We had one phone in the house, and it would never have occurred to me to come downstairs and call her even if I had her number. What if her parents answered? What if my parents heard me calling? Instead, I pulled the big white pages out of the closet, found her last name in a column of adults, tore it out, and I would sit there at night, pull the page out of the mattress where I'd hidden it, and read down the initials and the numbers, trying to imagine which one she belonged to. Weeks later, when I was better, I returned to school, and on an early afternoon in November, I found her waiting for the bus. I got on with her, and we talked all the way to her, to her stop, where she got out and I walked home. And I stayed on until the bus made its entire loop and took me back to school, where I got out and then walked home an hour late for dinner. We became inseparable. We held hands in the cafeteria, walked to classes, kissed in stairwells. I finally went over to her house to meet her parents, a doer couple, much older than my own. Her father worked for U.S. Steel and wore rimless glasses and a dark green hat. Sitting in their living room, still in his suit jacket from the day's work, he looked like John Foster Dulles presiding over some domestic detente, a relic of the Eisenhower years trapped in the autumn of Abbey Road. My only memory of her mother is of the time she turned to me almost out of nowhere and repeated my name twice as if it were a Martian's and said, what kind of name is that? Anne made me chocolate cakes in her mother's kitchen. She knitted me scarves and gloves. Some afternoons we sat together on the couch, an Afghan covering us up while her father read aloud from the education of Henry Adams and she touched my crotch. Some nights I'd stay for dinner and we'd watch the war on television, her father silently fuming. I knew better than to say anything, having already been sent home once from school for wearing a black armband in protest. I was sent home two other times, once for wearing my Cambridge bell-bottoms, deemed inappropriate by the homeroom teacher, the other time for bringing a copy of Philip Roth's Portnoy's Complaint to read in study hall. 
I passed the fall of 1969 at another family's dinner table, letting my hair grow to my collar, watching Walter Cronkite and listening to Henry Adams. By March of 1970, Henry Adams had left for England with his father. Prince Sihanouk had been deposed in a Cambodian coup. My hair grew as long as Anne's. And when I showed up after school one day, there was her older sister sitting at the piano playing Bach's D major prelude from the first book of the well-tempered clavier and smoking a cigarette. I didn't even know there was a sister. Twenty, tall. She was as strikingly beautiful as Anne was sweetly plain. The house was electric with anger. John Foster Dulles on the phone, talking as if he were renegotiating the Suez Treaty. Sister was back, dropped out of college, ready to marry her boyfriend and expecting the family to cover it. The wedding was in April, and for the occasion I went out and brought a blue blazer with lapels as wide as 1950s car fins, red and white striped bell bottoms and a blue knit tie so fat I hardly had to worry about buttoning my shirt. The groom showed up with blonde hair down his back and a collection of college buddies strangely reluctant to mingle. His own parents were Ohio people. We're Ohio people, they said, in a way that was supposed to sound meaningfully self-explanatory, like saying, we're vegetarians. The hippies and the homespun mingled in the Methodist church, and Anne's father gave her sister away with a look on his face like he was passing a stone. I was the youngest person there, and as I sat in the pew with Anne, all I could think of was her father reading Henry Adams, quote, As far as outward bearing went, such a family of turbulent children, given free reign by their parents or indifferent to check, should have come to more or less grief. Anne's father must have read these words, must have recited them to us, convinced that in the end his own children would go up, much like Henry Adams' children, quote, to be decent citizens. But they did not. The sister and her husband were escaping to Canada, his ushers standing at the ready to drive them all night along the highway to the border. He was avoiding the draft. She was three months pregnant. But at the wedding, we all danced to let it be on the hi-fi, hugged during two of us, kissed during the cross the universe. I looked at Anne at the words, nothing's going to change my world, and thought that everything would stay just like it was. And then, when the long and winding road came on, I could see in her sister's eyes a sadness of such depth I'd never seen in anyone. As Henry Adams wrote, the profoundest lessons are not the lessons of reason. They are the sudden strains that permanently warp the mind. That night, we sat on the unswept rice. Sister and new husband were gone. Parents had returned home. We looked up at the stars, and I saw them all as messages in bottles, washing up on our illicit shore. And took my hand and whispered in my ear, even though no one else was there, I know what to do now. She told me all about it. Told me it would be fine. Told you what? You know, Anne said, putting her splayed fingers on my lap. Two days later, we went out to an open field after school. Even though it was May, the ground was still stubbly with the broken stalks of last fall's grasses, and the new ground's growth hadn't come up far enough to soften it. She brought a blanket and we made our bed over the stubble, lying side by side for nearly half an hour before we touched. Her eyes were closed the whole time, and I looked at her red hair as it crinkled and crept into the grasses by the blanket's edge. I touched her, and before I could turn that touch into a caress, she had her jeans off and her arms around me, pushing me into her. Everything then came off, 
I found her, and almost before we started, it was over. I looked down, and there was blood everywhere. At first, I thought it was mine, but then I realized maybe this is what happens to a girl the first time. And then I realized that my mother would see blood in my underwear when she washed it. Mom would sit me down under the kitchen lights like a prisoner of war and grill me till I broke. She'd beat her open palm against her forehead as if I had violated her. Anne shook me out of this rictus of remorse, bunched up my underwear and cleaned all the blood off my legs and then hers and threw it into a ditch. Just go home in your jeans, walk in like nothing happened, and if it's that important to you, get another pair of underwear on as soon as you can. By this point, I was running only on my autonomic nervous system. Henry Adams and the Beatles had passed far out of my mind, and I was living in Roth's Portnoy's complaint. All the titillations of that book had now morphed into terror. Tell me, please, I heard my mother saying, just like Alex Portnoy's, what horrible things we have done to you all our lives that this should be our reward. And I would say, nothing, Mom, it's just a little blood. Nothing? Nothing? She would repeat over and over. And I sat there in the grass, imagining her fit, and remembering how I'd coughed up blood at Lomans. And then... Before I knew it, I was back home sitting in my dirty jeans at the dinner table, eating iceberg lettuce and green goddess dressing. A week or so afterwards, my parents announced that the whole family, including my 10-year-old brother, was going to Europe for the summer. Dad had a friend when he was teaching in New York who had a ritual when he returned from vacation. What did you see, you were supposed to ask, and he would say, everything. How did you go? And he would pronounce, first class. We flew to Paris, coach, from New York and arrived after midnight. My mother had a little high school French, and when we got into the taxi at the airport, she announced the address of our hotel in a perfect high school accent, 68 Rue de Martyrs. The cabbie turned around and looked at this middle-class American family up and down in disbelief. Thinking she had not said the address correctly, she gave him the letter from the Pittsburgh travel agent who had arranged our hotel stay. He shrugged his shoulders and drove us on. Our hotel was just off the Place Pigalle, the heart of the Hooker District. Even in 1970, there were prostitutes everywhere. Rouged and high-heeled, they patrolled the streets as if they had just reclaimed Paris from the German occupation. We lugged our bags up to the room and without unpacking, fell asleep. The world, wrote Henry Adams, contains no other spot than Paris where education can be pursued from every side. Would I be farmed out to a hooker only to return home to Anne with my newfound skills? I couldn't get her father's words out of my ears. It drowned out the street sounds and I fell asleep, reminded of his drone. The amusements of youth had to be abandoned. But even the half-dream of Henry Adams couldn't keep me from the hotel window when a violent crash arrested us from sleep. I saw two cars crumpled like concertinas, their windshields splattered across their hoods, and the two drivers seemingly unhurt, screaming at each other. They yelled in something far beyond my mother's high school French for almost half an hour. And then, anger spent, they climbed back into their cars and drove away, each crumpled chassis creaking back and forth like a circus prop. We woke up to the next morning to the chatter of the prostitutes, the hotel's breakfast nook was cleared for the Americans, and my father's daylight face showed just how far from first class we were, fooled by the naivete of our Pittsburgh travel agent, quote, quaint hotel in the heart of old Paris. Mom, how could you? Dad, you're just upset because you're getting your period.
Mom. That's it. We're going to Phuket's. In defiance, Mom announced that we were going to have lunch at the most famous restaurant she could think of. Phuket's on the Champs-Élysées. Mom must have read about it as a teenager. The haunt of Chaplin, Chevalier, Dietrich. A Brooklyn girl's fantasy of where the elite met to eat. We were not disappointed. Greeted at the door with a graciousness and care by a maitre d' with fluent English, the four of us, without a reservation, were escorted to a lovely table in the sun. Handing us a handwritten menu which we could not read, he then asked us what kind of food we liked. I said, roast beef, and he replied, that's fine, but I must warn you, it will be very rare. I acceded. It came, a slab cut from the whole roast, thick and bloody, practically quivering. I don't remember what anybody else had, but when time came for dessert, Mom confessed to the maitre d' that she read a story once in which someone had eaten nothing but a perfect peach. And he bowed slightly, snapped his fingers, and a young waiter in red came by. Words were exchanged, and like a magician pulling something from a sleeve, he produced the largest, most fragrant, most perfect peach that any of us had ever seen. Two subwaiters arrived. Mom was presented with a clean white plate, a little knife and fork, and a small glass of sweet white wine. The waiter took the peach, gauging its heft in his hand, and then took the back of a butter knife and deftly rubbed it all along the skin. Then, taking a tiny sharp knife, he made a small incision in the cleft. Setting the peach on the plate, cut side down, he placed his fingers around the top, squeezed a little, and the entire skin came off all at once, revealing a whole wet, blushing fruit. Mom clapped her hands together like a nine-year-old. And at that moment, I knew that this maitre d' knew more about my mother than we ever could, that what she wanted was a taste of magic, and that all fruit of whatever kind should be presented as if it were sheathed in sin. And for the 15 minutes that she ate that peach. I loved her. We returned three weeks later to a Pittsburgh wreathed in summer smoke blown over from the mills across the river. Anne would not see me, would not answer the phone. I went over to her house to see if she was through with me, to see if all she'd wanted in that field was her adulthood. I knocked and found the door opened by her mother who looked at me as if I'd been a ghost. She's not here. Who was the ghost now? When sophomore year began, I heard that she had run away, rumored to have become pregnant. Not by me, I was sure, though it was not until my senior year in high school that I dared sleep with anyone again. Years passed. Every now and then I dream of her. In college, when failed dates left me at the movies. In Princeton, when I'd see her red hair in the autumn stubble. I dreamed of her after I moved to California when my college students decided to stage a 60s party and asked me for fashion advice. They stood there in my Stanford office, well-cared-for children of the Reagan years, who knew no social trauma other than the Challenger disaster, now dressed in macrame vests, beaded headbands, and paisley bell-bottoms. I dreamed of her last night, after I saw my own son, 17, and his girlfriend taking shelter at the laptop in his room. 
Nights he once spent with his hobbies pass in front of the screen. Even when they're together, he and his girlfriend seem to text rather than to talk. There are no student newspapers to annotate, no notes to pass in class. Desire passes across touchpads. I love you, evanescing in a keystroke. Will he have relics of his love? I still have bits and pieces of my high school life. A Pittsburgh bus transfer slipped into bookmark, slipped as a bookmark in a novel. A letter written on the flyleaf of a signet Shakespeare. A Polaroid faded to a coppery sheen. One evening, my wife and I came home to find him texting on the couch. Two dirty dinner plates, two half-filled glasses, and two crumpled napkins on the dining table. He looked at me as if to say, don't tell mom that I had her over. I quickly cleared the table, put the dishes in the dishwasher and turned it on, letting the rushing of its spray drown out the noise of our complicity, not letting on to mom that there was anything amiss. That night, I would stay up until the cycle finished to restore the clean, warm plates to cupboard stacks, each one without a trace of her. Thank you. So I understand, Anna Joy, that we have time for some Q&A. I will repeat the questions. Feel free to ask about anything. How I write, tell me how you write, creative nonfiction, your mother's. Have any of you written autobiography? Any of you tried to write? Yes? Yes. What do you see as the problems of autobiographical writing? Uh, my own bias. Your own bias. <laughs> um, and projecting people in a way that could get me sued for libel. Projecting people in a way that could get you sued for libel. So the answer is either to write about other people or ask Monica Yoon to be your lawyer. <laughs> other, Ray? So the question is, I have such a remarkably full memory, and that for Ray and for many others, writing memoirs are often exercises in forgetfulness rather than remembering, and did I make any of this up? And also, did you have text or something to draw on? Right. Well, there are several ways of talking about it. One is that I feel that all my life I have been cursed with a phenomenal memory. I believe that I remember things wholly and accurately. Other people who were with me at the time of the experiences contest those memories. <laughs> but I have extremely vivid, imagistic, narrative memories of events going all the way back. The interesting question for me is why I remember the things I do. I have the most vivid memories of my dreams as a child rather than of my experiences, and I have my most vivid memories of my books. I grew up with people, as you could sense here, who were themselves creatures of memory and creatures of the past. 
and remembering and telling stories about the past was a central part of my childhood. And so I think by temperament and by training, I may have been conditioned to remember. Certainly, whenever you turn a memory into a narrative, you fictionalize it, which is not to say that you necessarily make things up, but it is to say that you create narrative drama. And it's certainly true that in the things that I read today and in the other things that I'm, I'm writing, I've looked for a narrative drama. But one could also say that because I grew up in a theatrical family in so many ways, everyday experience was constructed dramatically. There would be an entrance. There would be a riposte. There would be a barb. There would be a, there would be a line. And so I grew up, if you like, in the theater of my memory, always remembering things as if they were already dramatized. And part of that could be cognitive, and part of it could be familial. Does that speak to the kinds of things you were thinking about? Other thoughts and questions, responses? Yes. Well, what's it like writing something so personal? First of all, it was a long time ago, but it wasn't. You know, in a strange way, and I don't know if you feel this way or if others feel this way, there are moments in your life when time seems to have stopped. That is, there are experiences or there are crucies in your life when there's a before and after. And part of what I'm trying to explore in my own writing is part of what I'm trying to explore in my criticism and scholarship, which is, how do children grow up? How is reading something formative to the child? And so, in a certain sense, I'm doing this because my own childhood is still very much a part of me. And the experiences that I write about are experiences that are still very vivid in my mind. To me, the real issue of your question is the following. It's not so hard to write about this, but I was surprised just this evening how hard it was to read it. And to recognize that it's one thing to write something on a page that people will read silently and alone, and to write something that you will read in front of a living audience. And I think that this is one of the fascinating things about the creative process, and one of the interesting things that I'd like to learn more about from many of the writers here, which is, as you write, do you think of performance? Does a work take on a different feeling if you had read it than if you had heard it in a group? And what does it mean to be private in public? It's one thing to be exquisitely private in a letter or in a book. It's another thing to be very private in front of people. So as I'm thinking about it, you understand what I'm saying, the, the hardest thing. And because I've never read any of this before in any situation, all of my public venues have been either reading academic papers or teaching classes. When I was in college, I participated in college poetry readings, but that was more about being in college than about reading poetry. This is the first time I've been in a situation where I've read personal nonfiction in front of people. Other thoughts? 
if I were you, I'd ask, how do I write? And one of the things that fascinates me is that I write every day. And even when I have nothing to say. Now, I know that we all have colleagues and friends and teachers and fellow students who speak all the time, even though they have nothing to say. (laughs) I write all the time. And for me, it is the physical activity of writing. Writing, for me, is intimately linked up with the physicality of holding a pen or typing on a keyboard or looking at a screen or the physical experience of this. And so I'm posing my own question in a hope of generating discussion or responses from you, which is to say that, you know, in, in a funny way, writing is, um, writing is an activity that occasionally produces something for me. And I cannot wait for inspiration. The painter Chuck Close said once, very famously, in a way that has been... It, it, he said something which has been very uh, uh, badly abused, but what he said is that amateurs wait for inspiration, professionals get up and go to work. And, and he said this, you know, with a kind of you know, coarse dismissiveness. But the way I would put it would be to say that, not simply that I can't wait for inspiration, but that if inspiration ever comes, it comes while I'm doing rather than before. I can't wait for it. And one of the things that I'd be interested, and I throw an enormous amount out. And so one of the interesting things that I think is true about the writing process and that I'd be interested in hearing from those of you that are student or professional writers are, what is your writing day like? And do you have a special time? Uh, do, you, do you have a limit? Anthony Trollope woke up every morning and wrote 5,000 words before going to work at the post office. Yes, Ray. And then we have questions later. I'm not going to tell you about my process right now because it would sound probably disorganized compared to yours. But um, I know your job is very demanding. So how do you find the time? you get up really early or how do you do it? Well, I'm like a radio that's always on, except sometimes I have the volume off. And so in so many ways, when I have free time, I have things that I generate. I don't necessarily block out periods of time. And there are times when I will just drop everything that I'm doing and, I'll, and, and I will write. You know, I'm in the kind of job which requires a level of time management and organization. And my work expands to fill the time allotted to it, so I don't give it very much time. And so I'm trying very hard to keep this organized. There was a question in the back and then Anna Joy. I, you know, it, do I try to get a certain reaction from my audience? I'm glad you asked that because, as I've been stressing, I grew up in a world where audience reaction was everything. And so in my teaching, in my performing, in my writing, I'm always looking for audience reactions, which is why I wanted to say, you know, it's okay to laugh or it's okay to be quiet. I mean, the success of what I'm doing so often depends on an audience reaction. And... There are different opinions. Some people will say, I write for myself, or I don't need an audience, or it doesn't matter if there's anybody there. I believe exactly the opposite. That's not to say that I'm exhibitionistic, but I do believe that the meaning of an utterance or the status of an artistic product is directly related to the way in which it establishes a bond between the reader and the audience, the writer and the reader, 
the artist and the beholder, the musician and the listener. Does that give you a sense of where I'm going on this? Anna Joy? I repeat that for the microphone that you are a self-confessed binge writer. Binge writer. Um, an unapologetic binge writer. I was so I felt so guilty for so long when I heard that um, so many writers that I uh, whose work I appreciated wrote every day and had this pattern, and, and especially those who you know woke up at five in the morning before the kids woke up and mm-hmm. and you know wanted so much to do that. And um, I think that when I'm in my home and in my daily sort of daily thing, all of my stuff to me, and it's hard for me to get um, into the sort of magical zone that brings me to the kind of writing I like. So I end up writing, you know, 13-hour days in the summer, writing and drawing and doing different things like reading, writing, drawing. Um, and then in the, um, in the other time, I can do revision, I can do research, I can do sort of more um, logic brain things, mm-hmm. but I can't get into that deep magic place unless I have nothing to do but that. Um, so the breaks. Got it. Um, and then my question was similar, but I, because I really, I loved your candor in talking about that this is the first time you're doing this kind of work and are, uh, in public. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, the piece that I just wrote is very, very personal, and I've been reading it out loud um, and, and having this same, ex- or this experience of being, you know, oh, these words are not just these words. These words are my my body is performing these words as much as these words, um, and it's changed um, not so much. It's changed my understanding of what I need the reader for. Yes. So not just um, am I thinking of the audience mm-hmm. and how I'm affecting them, but am I thinking of the audience and what I'm asking of them? So what you're saying is just to repeat the question for the mic. What you're saying is that in giving reading, in, in reading and writing very personal stuff, it changes the audience expectation. Or perhaps another way of putting it in response to this idea and in response to the previous questions, to say that you know, part of what, I guess part of what the meaning of the work has is in that communicative experience. Um, that's different from confession. You know, I think that there was a, there's a belief that writing can be confessional. There was a, you know, we know that in the 50s and 60s there was the confessional school of American poetry. Or we know that there's a great deal of personal writing that reads like confession. Confession, the purpose of confession is to ask forgiveness. And I can say, and, and while there may be confessions that are deeply artistic, like St. Augustine's or like Rousseau's, I'm not writing confessions. That is, the purpose is not to seek forgiveness. The purpose is to seek community, to seek engagement. And perhaps, you know, another way of putting it is to say something like the following. A friend of mine once said to me, the experiences you have in your life that you believe are most singular, that you believe to be unique, falling in love, the death of a loved one, the birth of a child, These are the experiences that are absolutely universal. And yet we believe that no one can experience them as we have. Nobody knows what I'm going through, says the 18-year-old boy. Then why are you listening to the same music as three million other people? 
Okay? No one can imagine what it's like to lose a parent. Well, people, you know, this is the way life is. No one can imagine what it's like to be there at the birth of your child. Ask the billions of people who've been there at the birth of their child. But there is something about these experiences. And so part of what I would say in response to many of these questions, and I think this may be a way of wrapping up, is to say that what one looks for in expressing the singular is confirmation of the universal. And the understanding that even though we all experience these, it's maybe the job of a certain kind of writing to lift them from or to move them from statement of fact, mere memory, or confession into something that is dramatic and that is shaped. And that it's in the drama that the audience reaction responds. Another way of putting it is to say that as the child of a theatrical family, it's all about timing. And I can tell you that it's as important to know what to do on the stage as it is to know when to get off the stage. And it's now a quarter to six, and I'm going to get off the stage. Thank you. (laughs) 